The following is a message by Dr. Dennis Johnson from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. We continue our series in 1 Corinthians as the faculty is uh, having this series throughout uh, on the Thursdays throughout this semester. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, and I'm going to read through chapter 2, verse 7. Chapter 1, verse 18, Paul discusses here the foolish wisdom of gospel ministry or the weak power of the cross. Hear God's word. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet, among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Though it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. This is God's word. Well, I think I was as delighted last week as Professor Venny was chagrined when Dr. Jones seemed to hint that although all scripture is inspired and inerrant word of God, It's just possible that 1 Corinthians 1 might be more central to things than 1 Chronicles 1. You remember that? 
Not that First Chronicles 1 isn't important, but there are more important things. Well, this is a text that really deserves a number of sermons, and this is really not even a sermon, but a meditation on it. But I want us to think together about the implications of Paul's corrective here to the Corinthian Christians' infatuation with Greek philosophy and sophistication for how we see ourselves in our pursuits in an academic institution. Paul puts a finger on a tension that constantly confronts Christians who are seriously serious about intellectually engaging the thinking people all around us to whom we are called to bear witness to the truth of Christ. And it's a tension that confronts Christian academic institutions like Westminster Seminary California as we're called to operate with integrity and excellence in a pluralistic environment. I could put it bluntly this way. As other academic institutions, both schools and accrediting associations look at Westminster Should they see wisdom or should they see foolishness? A community to be respected or a community to be scorned? And we face this especially intensely this year because we will be having an accreditation visit from a team of representatives of other schools in February of 2009 appointed by the Western Association of Schools and Colleges and the Association of Theological Schools. The team members will be eager to speak to you as students about your experience here Westminster is accredited by both WASC and ATS, and that implies that uh, sometime in the past, when they've had teams come to visit us, they've concluded that not everything that's happening here is sheer foolishness. Hmm? Because they've made that decision, some of you are receiving student loans, some of you will find access into graduate programs beyond your studies here. That's practical benefits to accreditation, but does it mean that Westminster is sold out for the sake of academic respectability? Should we be, if we're really faithful to the gospel, contemptible to all thinking people? Well, Paul seems to say that in one sense here, and yet he's not forgetting other themes of scripture. For example, Genesis chapter 41, Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams about the fat and the lean. But he doesn't just interpret the dreams, he lays out a strategy for how Egypt is going to survive the seven years of famine that will follow the seven years of bumper crops. And Pharaoh says, God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Moses says, to Israel in Deuteronomy 4.6, when you keep the Lord's commands and do them, that will be your wisdom and understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. And of course in 1 Kings 4 we hear about people coming from all over the ancient Near East to sit at the feet of Solomon and marvel at his wisdom. So then what do we make of Paul's statements here that God's wise foolishness, God's strong weakness is contemptible in the eyes of the world. What are we to make of that statement? Well, Paul is using that paradox to cause the Corinthians and God would challenge us to look deeply at our heart motivations in the light of the gospel. Not just the motivations behind a seminary's desire to 
demonstrate educational effectiveness in the next accreditation visit, but your motivations in your studies, in your Hebrew and Greek quizzes, in your papers, in the exams, what is our motivation? And Paul says the cross always puts our motives to the test. So he moves in this text, and I'm going to move much too briefly. As I say, this deserves a bunch of sermons. But he moves in this text from the foolishness of the message to the foolishness of the recipients of the message to the foolishness of the messengers. Did you see that? The foolishness of the message, verses 18 through 25 in the first chapter, that message of the cross, and then the, mes- and then the recipients. Look at you. You're nothing special in verses 26 and following through the end of the chapter. And then in the beginning of chapter 2, he says, and look at me, I'm not something very special either. Think about that foolishness and how it displays the power of God. God's foolish wisdom in the cross, verses 18 through 25. Paul knows that the party spirit, the rivalry, the schisms in this church, I am of Paul, I am Apollos' loyal disciple, I'm really in line with Cephas, the rock, and then that final group that said, well, you guys are really not there because we belong to Christ, unlike all the rest of you. Paul knows that that ultimately, he sees a good diagnostician, that ultimately comes down to pride, and the cure is the cross. That humiliating event that broadcasts to all the world that the only remedy to what is wrong with us, not just humanity generally, but you, and me, the only remedy to what's wrong with you, the only remedy to what's wrong with me, is for the innocent, holy Son of God to be flogged and nailed to a cross and pierced by wicked humans and forsaken by his faithful, holy Father. Nothing else can solve our problem. And that's objectionable to all sorts of people. Paul knows that. He says the Greeks like you Corinthians, see the human problem as a lack of wisdom, as, a, as a, a being captured by some illusory perception of reality. And so you look to sophisticated, esoteric explanations of the world and human experience. That holds the key to salvation, the way so many Greeks see it. In that frame of reference, to exult in the cross of an executed Jewish teacher seems senseless folly. And of course the Jewish leaders of Paul's day, among whom Paul once numbered himself, saw Israel's problem as ongoing occupation of the promised land by a succession of pagan political powers. Babylon, Persia, Greece, Egypt, Syria, now Rome. What was needed was a messianic warrior like David to lead Israel in an uprising, a liberation movement to purge God's land of the defiling presence of those pagans. We need a champion like Moses to set my people free. So in Jewish eyes, a Messiah hanged on a tree, repudiated by humans and cursed by God, could never muster the power to expel the Roman occupiers from God's people, from God's land. And for Paul even to suggest that Jesus the crucified as the promised deliverer was just scandalous. But Paul has been shown through the invincible power of Christ's glory, capturing his own heart and shattering his own self-justifying ego, Paul has been shown the true diagnosis of our human condition. We're not just confused. 
We are willingly resistant to the truth of our radical accountability to the creator. We suppress the truth and in the process we become slaves of powers that are far more oppressive than Rome. Sin and Satan are murderous slave masters and the cross is the only remedy. It seems like folly and weakness from the outside. It's an affront to our intelligence and our self-esteem but it's God's secret weapon to set believers really free, free from captivity to the corruption that has killed us and is killing us and will kill us if it were not for the mighty intervention of God himself in the foolish weakness of the cross. So Paul talks to the people who are boasting in their piece of the church I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. And he says, how dare you gloat in your presumed superiority over others in the body of Christ, over your subgroup within this body? How can you do that when you ponder what it took to make us and turn us from condemned rebels into beloved sons and daughters of the king? And when we recall that Christ died not just for my little piece of the church, but for everyone who rests and trusts in his death and in his righteousness. The message looks foolish and weak, but it's oh so wise and oh so strong. Now the recipients, on the other hand, are really weak. Verses 26 through the end of the chapter, look at you. God's foolish wisdom in the church. It's a sober look at ourselves at the church, and by extension, I would say even to our seminary community. Now, I know, here we say, Paul says, not many of you are wise according to worldly standards, not many powerful, not many of noble, noble birth. And you're thinking of the fact that we made you submit all those transcripts of your undergraduate work and references from pastors and professors to prove to us that you could handle it here. Some of you are wondering whether you can at this point, but... Uh, Isn't Westminster much more selective than the church? Well, in some ways, yeah. In some ways, we have to be. But it's also true of us here, just as it was true of the church at Corinth and all congregations around the world, that in fact, we who are called by God's sovereign grace are, in the grand scheme of things, not many wise, according to worldly standards, not many powerful, not many of noble birth, foolish, weak, low, and despised. Ouch. Quite a description for the faculty and student body of a graduate school of theology and ministry. We should put that in our catalog, I think. Wouldn't that be great? Put that in our accreditation report. These are our qualifications. Now, of course, Paul is not saying that God does not call any wise. He's not forgetting Joseph's wisdom or Daniel's wisdom. He's not forgetting the wealth of Abraham. No, His point is that the composition of the church makes it crystal clear that the qualifications that human societies typically identify to mark out the boundaries that set apart the insiders from the outsiders, those boundary markers are irrelevant. Those qualifications just don't count in terms of access into the kingdom of God, which is ruled by a crucified and risen Messiah, Jesus. What counts in God's kingdom, as Paul says in verse 30, is God's initiative. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification 
and redemption. It's because of what God has done. Not even because of what he's given you by virtue of creating you as he's made you with the abilities that you have naturally. No, it's because of sovereign grace. And that excludes our boasting in the presence of God and of one another. Verse 31, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul quotes from the prophecy of Jeremiah. So here's the challenge that you face in every assignment you complete, every quiz in Hebrew or Greek, every exam that you take. It's a challenge for us as an institution as we get graded over this next year through that visiting team and the review of the team's report by the accrediting commissions. How can we convey as honestly as we can what we are learning together as a community, both our strengths and our weaknesses, so that we receive a fair and accurate evaluation without getting our egos so wrapped around our performance or others' perception of our performance such that we find our identity riding on others perceiving us as doing well. That's a hard one. That's a great challenge. It's a tall order. The only remedy for the temptation to boast in ourselves is to be so overwhelmed with wonder at the God who has graciously placed us in Christ, that our heart reflects when we receive commendation is to reflect that toward him. And our heart reflects when we receive critique is to be humbled by it and to take comfort in the fact that our place in the Father's heart does not depend on how well we're doing academically, but on how perfectly Jesus has done for us in his obedience and in his sacrificial death. And that equips us to be messengers like Paul. Also, nothing really great to write home about here, opening of chapter 2. My message was not with lofty speech or wisdom. It didn't match Greek rhetoric standards by a long shot. Of course, Paul knows that his critics have been saying that already in his second letter to the Corinthians. He quotes their analysis of his homiletic weaknesses, 2 Corinthians 10.10, His letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. That's really the kind of evaluation when you're in a homiletics practicum. That's what you want to see on your evaluation sheet. Or Paul's analysis here. Trembling, weakness, fear. Great. That's actually, frankly, what when you get into ministry, that's probably the verdict you will pass on some of your sermons after you've preached them. That was terrible. Those are often the sermons that people will come up to you and say, wow, the Lord really spoke to you this morning. And you're kicking yourself for doing such a poor job. And you see the mystery here of God using our weakness. Now, that doesn't mean we're not going to work on you to get the uhs and the ums and the distracting mannerisms out of your preaching style. Uh, That's static that we don't want to put in the way of people hearing the word. So we're going to try it on that. But remember what Paul says here. When people's lives are changed as you open the word, it's not your persuasiveness. It's the power of God working through the gospel. And that's what we need to keep in mind as well. As we pursue excellence, but not for our glory, but for his. And the result of it all, his strength displayed in our weakness, in our research papers, in our exams, in the accreditation review, what's the result of it all? that he receives all the glory. Isn't that what Jesus said? Sermon on the Mount. Let your light so shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father 
in heaven. The cross teaches us, frees us to make that our aim in all of our studies, in all the evaluation that we do, and sets us free to bring glory to him. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to teach our hearts deeply this motivation of delight in bringing you glory. We ask you to root out the pockets of pride, arrogance, self-centeredness in our own hearts. Paul so clearly diagnosed in the hearts of his believing brothers and sisters in Corinth. We find them still in our own hearts. We want not only to do well, but to be seen as doing well. Father, we do want to do well, though, in our heart of hearts, not just for ourselves, but for your glory. And we ask that you would teach us ever more deeply the reality and the joy and the freedom of that word that we hear through your apostle. Let him who boasts, boast only in the Lord. We pray in the name of Jesus, the crucified and risen one who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen. Copyright 2008, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way, and you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this broadcast on our website is preferred.